Hey folks, you're listening to The Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. And I just got a quick message before we get into what is a very good pod. We are at 440-some regular monthly donors to this independent little media project, and I would love to get it to 500 monthly donors by the end of the month. Uh, if you want to get us over the hump, get us to 500 monthly donors, uh, it's very easy. Go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, pop in your credit card, and give whatever you can, $5, $10, $15 a month. We'd really appreciate it. And if you don't have the means, don't stress. But again, we're about 60 folks away from getting there. And it's really important to Jim and I that, that we become sustainable when it comes to funding. We're also one of several very good and excellent left-wing podcasts on the Harbinger Media Network. And a new episode that I want to recommend is the latest from Habib T. Please, where Nashua and Ryan welcome Amumalak Kakak to discuss her role as MP of Nunavut, the lingering impacts of colonialism on the North, and how that area of the country has been neglected. And that's the kind of content you'll get at Harbinger, where we're challenging right-wing and liberal corporate media dominance with a political point of view you won't find anywhere else. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwachibuskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. And this podcast is a direct sequel to our last podcast, something we don't always do here. But our last podcast had, you know, lawyers, Evanish Nanda and Adam Sabrowski on. And in that pod, which you should go listen to, not that you have to, but you should just listen to our podcast as a, as a, as a rule if you're, if you're a regular listener. You know, I made the case that expensive constitutional legal battles, especially when it comes to like labor law and unions, are the big showy arm muscles when it comes to building power for the working class. That even if you win in court, the bosses or the rich and powerful can just ignore the laws or the rules and rewrite them to their own benefit. Uh, the left in general and labor unions in particular, uh, you know, I would argue have skipped leg day for too long. And that was the argument I was making in the pod. But what exactly is leg day. What does that mean? How does the working class build genuine power? And joining me today to help answer that question is a man who never skips leg day. It is uh, Q Anthony, formerly known as Andre Demise, a contributing editor with McLean's Magazine and a partner in the Black Indie Media Network Resistance Noir. Q, welcome. Welcome to the pod. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing, you know, as good as can be expected, given the circumstances and the mute. <laughs> uh, man, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the the standard how you doing greeting is just, it's been a year and, and, and by now we should have learned to no longer use that. I asked that because I generally, am, I generally am interested in how people are doing. But yeah, COVID sucks. It sucks for me too. It sucks for everybody. I feel isolated as hell, you know, like materially myself and the fam are doing okay. But I got to say, this is, this is like some bleak and depressing times if I'm being perfectly honest. And I know that it's coming out in my writing a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I hope that we can have honest conversations about how this shit is affecting everybody. So that's yeah. how I'm doing. Exactly. Exactly. And also joining us is someone uh, who I have no idea how he feels about leg day, but uh, the person is Brandon Love, the co-secretary of the Toronto branch of the industrial workers of the world. Uh, Brandon spends his days 
looking for work in this capitalist hellscape and by night rants about politics to whoever will listen. Brandon, uh, thank you for joining us on the progress report. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Okay. So let's, uh, let's kind of set up, we've set up the premise, but why don't we, uh, kind of like talk about when I say building power, you know, and what that actually means. I think, I think where a lot of people's brains go to is electoral politics and like winning elections. And Q, why don't you kind of just like walk us through the limits of kind of like liberal electoral politics and, and the kind of conflicts that arise between that and building working class power? Sure. So what happens uh, with electoral politics, and it's something that, you know, in my, in my past as a uh, quote unquote progressive lib, uh, I've fallen into that trap myself. But the idea is that in order to affect material change, the pathway to that, and pretty much the only pathway to it, is through electoral politics. So you often hear that when there are demands made of uh, the ruling class, when there's demands made of the elites and the people who create policy and so forth, that the answer to their woes is to vote. Uh, you know, Barack Obama was like the absolute master at this. He would tell people, and he would he would raise uh, he would raise something that gets people's energy up. He would talk about, you know, the Bush presidency. He would uh, he would talk about Hillary Clinton's campaign tactics being divisive. He would talk about race and racism and economic inequality and the lack of health care and all this stuff. And people would boo, you know, because obviously their frustrations were with the system. And then he would turn around and say, don't boo, vote. And I, I wonder if people now understand how pernicious that was. Because when you tell people that the answer to their their, uh, you know, their personal situation, their material conditions, their economic malaise, and so forth. If the answer to that is via electoral politics, what it leaves out is that electoral politics is not by any stretch uncompromised. We know for a fact that politicians will, and they admit this, answer to the people that are lobbying them. They will answer to special interest groups, even though they love to position themselves as though they aren't. But when Mitt Romney says something like, you know, corporations are people, my friend, uh, when people um, will unironically say that you know money and donations are free speech, then we know that the power rests with the class of people that have the money and that are able to incorporate and that do have the ability to hire lobbyists to advocate in their interests. And that the average person hardly has any effect on uh, you know on, 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 on political outcomes. We know this, for example, when uh, the Fight for 15 campaign has been going on for what, nigh on like 20 years now. And, uh, you know, there was a, I don't know that Joe Biden actually promised this. You know, he talked about campaigning for it. But uh, I will, I'll go so far as to say it was a campaign promise that, you know, a $15 an hour minimum wage was going to happen um, in a Democratic presidency. That people were talking about, well, we're going to pull him left and make sure that this happens. They talked about a $2,000 stimulus paycheck. They talked about eliminating student loans. Now, again, it wasn't necessarily Biden's policy, but he did talk about being able to cancel up to $50,000 in student debt as long as it goes through the Congress and Senate first. And none of these things happened. You know, there there is a $1.9 trillion stimulus that's uh, running down the pipeline in the, in the US, but where's most of that money going? It's not necessarily going towards the people. So the people dump all of this time, energy, dump all of this money that is with their small donations and so forth into electoral politics. And that's viewed as the only pipeline to change. I actually got into it 
with singer John Legend and billionaire Mark Cuban one time on social media because uh, Mark Cuban was talking about the importance of donating to food banks because in this pandemic era, food banks are stretched tight. And uh, John Legend chimed in to say, well, we shouldn't be donating to food banks. And, I, you know, the logic of this is that if you simply try to repair the patches in the social safety or try to patch the holes in the social safety net um, by donating to charities individually, you essentially let the ruling class off the hook, which is kind of kind of true, kind of true in the sense that if we make charities the stopgap for social policy, it does let the class of people with the most power and the most money off the hook. That is entirely true. But to say that donating to food banks is a bad thing, that's absolute horseshit. And I said that I said as much to him, you know, because he's, he's saying that rather than donating to food banks, we ought to donate money to the campaigns of uh, John Ossoff <laughs> and Raphael Warnock in Georgia. That way, the Democrats can win control of the Senate. And with the control of the Senate and the House and the executive, then American progressives can get the kind of policies passed that need to be passed so that food banks become obsolete. And look how that fucking worked out. So you can <laughs> see that there's, there's a definite limit. Uh, to electoral politics there. And, you know, what what the political class will do is try to convince you that all your frustrations and all the energy that you've built up because of being able to look around you and seeing that your situation is garbage. The only avenue for expressing that is through electoral politics. And that's the limit that I'm talking about. Yeah, like Joe Biden is going to abolish uh food banks through some type of like supply booklet cute cuban food program or something i mean you want to know what absolutely mind-boggling thing about food banks is that they are new like i was born in 1983 the very first food bank in canada opened its door in in 1981 actually right here where i'm recording this in edmonton they are a very like new development uh when it comes to actually feeding the hungry (laughs) And uh, just a just a fun little food bank uh, factoid for the audience out there. Okay, so so you've set up the case that that electoral politics cl- has its uh, clearly has its limits as a meaningful avenue to for the working class to build power. So so what's uh, what is your broad kind of like prescription? Then what should people be doing? Make them afraid of you. That's in the history of in the history of struggles, you know, the only the only way to win any sort of concessions from the ruling class, and that's assuming that what you want, like the outcome that you want is to get those concessions. Keep in mind that these are the halfway measures. Any any type of reform whatsoever is a concession to you know, to, to regular people, you know, we call them the working class, the proletariat, whatever you want to call them. But the only way to even win reform is to make the ruling class afraid of you. And I'm not talking about losing their jobs in an election. I mean, actually afraid, like I may not be able to show my face in the streets afraid, you know, so uh, that's, that's my prescription. And the, and the form for that is direct action. The other form for that is, uh, you know, and people are going to argue about this, but I believe heavily in mutual aid, you know, and uh While people will, I think, overstate the importance of, for example, the Black Panthers mutual aid program, not that it wasn't important, it absolutely was, but people will say things like, well, the state, you know, uh, assassinated Fred Hampton and and dismantled the Black Panthers and infiltrated them because of the mutual aid programs. It's like, no, there there was a lot more to it than that. But I will say that mutual aid programs do pose a significant threat because especially in an age where we are becoming more and more and more isolated in our workplaces, we no longer have the quote unquote shop floor. Like 
we, we aren't all working in factories. We don't have the ability to, you know, block off, cordon off every workplace that violates worker rights, that uh, violates labor standards and so forth. We're living in an era where labor standards are more of a guideline than hard and fast rules. And that's because there are so many of us that are working remotely, so many of us that are working in cubicles and non-unionized environments. There are so many of us that are working in, in the gig economy and so forth. And a lot of that, you know, when we talk about outsourcing work, like the only danger here isn't simple, isn't the mere outsourcing of work to other countries. There's also the fact that, you know, the, uh, the ability to engage in class power has also been exported uh, to countries that are handling our manufacturing work. And now that we've essentially transformed ourselves into a post-industrial and highly service-based uh, form of economic production, what that means is that we are very much isolated from each other. So the way to repair that or one way to repair that is to engage in local organizing. And the quickest way to engage in local organizing, especially around you know being able to meet people's needs, is mutual aid. And I think that there is a definite fear of that. Uh, engaging in forms of self-determination, you're seeing a wave of, when I say black nationalism, I'm not talking about, you know, like... Uh, uh, separatism or whatever it is that people like to misconstrue it as. When I say nationalism, I'm talking about things like pan-Africanism, understanding like the the ability of the diaspora to organize and empower each other, empower ourselves, to engage in solidarity with other groups, right? All of, all of these are various answers to a, a fairly simple problem. Who should hold the power? Should it be the people that uh, accumulate the labor value of people, uh, other people that are working for them? Should it be the class of people that are able to, you know, uh, hire other people's labor? Should it be the ones who control the levers of government, who are able to, you know, who are unelected and unaccountable and control the mechanisms of essentially this like sort of technocratic regime that we found ourselves within? Should it be them that hold the power or should it be the people that hold the power? And my answer is pretty simple. It should be the people that hold the power. So we have to engage in modes of politics that don't simply reward the ones that say nice things. And then once they get elected, stop listening to us. Yeah. And I feel like this is a good opportunity to bring Brandon in now. And and, and so the IWW, the Wobblies, I mean, they have, you know, a, a program to make the boss afraid of you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why don't you kind of walk us through what, uh, you know, what the Wobblies, how the Wobblies are a part of, of that type of, of program? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think like as Q is kind of talking about like, you know, mutual aid is a huge, hugely important thing to like radicalize people and make them realize, um, to kind of help people meet their material needs so they can actually start to realize, um, like the power that they have. Um, and I think like within the workplace specifically, um, people don't realize that they have a huge amount of power to kind of affect society at large, or at the very least, like improve the conditions um, kind of within their own workplace through kind of um, concerted organized action. Um, you know, like oftentimes people will be in shitty, like isolating jobs. Um, and I think currently they're often their best response, at least what they think currently is that, you know, we'll just find another job. Um, but this often just means like going to another job with a different shitty boss with many of the same kind of conditions and I think um, the workplace kind of gives radicals a, a place to kind of talk to working people, um, let them know that the issues that they're facing in this particular workplace are, are shared um, by many other kind of workers. Um, you know, essentially that it's a, it's a class issue, um, which kind of allows you to bring up kind of issues around class consciousness and kind of elevate that, that um, idea in people's minds that, you know, you can't just escape this by going to a different job. You're going to have the same shitty capitalist boss there. Um, 
And I think like that's kind of where the workplace can be a really good starting point to kind of elevate kind of class consciousness in people. Yeah, Q, and I know you talked about mutual aid, but why don't we just focus on the workplace for a minute? Like, like why is the workplace such an important place for folks who believe what we believe, that the people should have the power? Of why is the workplace important as a, as well, a place to organize? I mean, where do you spend most of your time throughout the day, right? Like you spend, I mean, people would like to spend eight hours a, a day sleeping, but that's just absolutely not true. So once you factor in your commute uh, and your time prepping to get ready for work and everything else, like you are spending the majority of your day, um, at least like your waking hours around the workplace. And for people that are working more than one job, you're spending all of your time in the workplace and then wherever you end up moonlighting. So whether you're doing DoorDash or Uber slash Uber Eats or whether you have a night job at you know a restaurant or whatever it is, you are spending a great deal of your time around other people that have the same interests that you do. And the interest is they want to be able to make enough to eat, to live, to put a roof over their heads, to be able to like, uh, you know, if, if uh, a sudden act of disaster uh, comes into their lives that they're able to handle this without going into debt and to poverty. So given that you're spending a great deal of your time around other people that have the exact same interests that you do, then yes, the workplace is an incredibly important place for you to begin your organizing work. Your neighborhood is also a very important place for you to begin your organizing work. But depending on where you live, some people may have your interest at heart, some may not. You may live next to a manager. You may live next to somebody who's you know, an entrepreneur or working for themselves and so forth. So the, the interests don't necessarily align, but in the workplace, like there are fairly solid class lines. There are people that work and are managed, and there are people that are managers. There are people that are executives. Uh, so there's, there's nowhere that the lines are drawn in such a distinct fashion as inside the workplace. Um, it, to me, it's just common sense that that's where you start. And I'd also make the argument that not only is it a place where we spend a huge chunk of our lives uh, and, um, and you know, that these are the people that you're going to see on a regular basis, sometimes more than your family, but the work organizing the workplace is also the, the place that can inflict the most like actual economic harm on, you know, on capitalism. Right. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. Like that's, that's, that's where, you, that's where you actually heard him. Remember at, at the beginning of the pandemic last year, that the Weston family uh, decided that they were going to offer workers a temporary $2 an hour wage increase because the heroes who are on the front lines are taking all the risks and making sure that folks are still able to go and get their groceries. Essentially what they're doing is they're the end, they're the end of the supply chain. And without those frontline workers, you know, it doesn't matter if you have, uh, you know, whether it's the agricultural workers, whether it's the, uh, the grocery pickers in the warehouses, whether it's the truck drivers and so forth, nothing actually moves until it hits the retail end. And because they know that they're underpaying retail workers, uh, and especially because retail workers are taking on the additional risk of, you know, being in a place exposed to many people that could possibly be, you know, exhaling uh, uh, pathogens at the onset of a pandemic, they placate people, they placate union demands uh, for $2 an hour, which have, as far as I know, this has been years in the making, it's three to four years that uh, uh, the UFCW has been asking for um, a, a, a wage increase. Uh, so they, they make that, that concession and call the workers heroes. And then after everything has died down and normalcy has sort of crept into the uh, 
sort of like the the, the milieu in which we find ourselves into the in the pandemic, like we've essentially normalized all of this, they quietly rescind that two dollar an hour wage increase, and and people are back to where they were in the first place. Now, have the conditions changed? No, they've actually gotten worse. You know, we've we went from you know a couple dozen cases to a hundred or so cases to hundreds of cases. Now we're in, a, in you know over. Uh, on a normal basis, over a thousand cases uh, diagnosed per day. Uh, so things have in, gotten in Ontario, worse. You're talking the, about. Yeah, in Ontario. Sorry, I, I'm in I'm in Toronto, so you know I'm going to end up focusing on the center of the universe here. Very sorry about that. Obviously. But you get the idea. <laughs> but but you know, but the same thing has happened in Alberta. That uh, you know, between the first and the second wave, there has been like a uh, an, a steady uptick in cases. No, so exactly, retail We're workers the are third, the third wave is starting here, and and yeah. superstore workers are negotiating in negotiations right now with with Sobe, or not Sobe's uh, Loblaws. Loblaws, yeah. And they are, yeah. I don't think it. I anecdotally, I don't think those negotiations are real. I think that to those two dollars raises are off the table. Like, yeah. it is, it is, it is bad, right? And and the line from you know the Solidarity Forever song is is still true, right? Like, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. The economy doesn't work unless thousands, hundreds of thousands of people like actually go and and stock shelves at a superstore or man the the uh the doors there or or work the cash register or whatever job you can think of like literally the economy and the flow of money mm-hmm. stops if- yeah, well and keep in keep in mind that a lot of this is to me uh to draw away from the question why do we pay for food <laughs> why no seriously why yeah i need this to live i have to pay how much to get this thing i need to live yeah yeah and i've, I've uh, you know talked about this with a lot of different people as to why it is. i mean first of all canada doesn't have a quote unquote food stamp program like we don't have a food subsidy program uh nationally or provincially so and even that distracts from the question why is food something that we pay for and that's i mean that probably is going to throw some people for a loop and why wouldn't we pay for food but uh we we do know that um a human necessity is something that we've essentially relegated all of the responsibility and the profit taking to large companies uh essentially we've we've got an oligarchy on food production and food distribution in this country uh and it's a very uneven mode of food production people who are living in northern communities are paying absolutely unreal i mean obviously it's real for them but to me it's just inconceivable that people would pay 20 dollars for a watermelon or something to that effect right so because the the way that we've set up our distribution channels for food causes people in northern communities to have to pay so much more for food and this has obviously like deleterious health effects the question is why do we even pay for it in the first place and a lot of this gets subsumed behind the conversation about whether or not retail workers ought to be given hazard pay for working in what is obviously at this point a very hazardous environment and we've essentially normalized that that yeah you know everyone's got to take one for the team and you are too so while white collar workers and i include myself in this like i don't i work remotely but uh people who can who aren't those essential frontline workers can work remotely and essentially remove themselves from the the worst effects of this pandemic and people who are much more precarious uh oftentimes have uh, fewer uh, 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 like there's a much more labor precarity, I'm going to say around them, even if you are unionized, there's still the ability for these, uh, these stores to be closed down or, or for people to be laid off, et cetera. You know, they're, they're taking the brunt of this work and we can't even find it in our hearts to put terror into the minds of anybody that would take away their pay. And that's, that's what's necessary right now. 
Okay. So, so, yeah. so we've established that electoral politics is not uh, necessarily the best place for this. We've, we've talked about the importance of the workplace. Um, so, so, you know, people come to me and they're like, what do I do? I, I want to get involved. I want to make a difference. And one of the things that I will tell people is to get involved in your union. But I mean, that doesn't necessarily feel like it's enough. But but Brandon, why don't we kind of talk about the state of the labor movement as it currently exists and, and kind of why unions are this kind of much diminished, much diminished force than they than they were than they are now compared to what they were, say, like 80 some years ago when they were making the boss scared. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, there's like a really good article um, called Randcuffed by uh, Alia Ahmed that kind of discusses the history of unions and how they used to be like a militant organization um, that was rooted uh, kind of in the rank and file. Um, but kind of since I think 1945 with the kind of the Ford Windsor plant strike, um, that was settled by Justice Ivan Rand imposing um, labor peace on the like the Wildcats striking um, workers, like thousands of them. Um, unions since 1945 have been kind of hamstrung by this legislation and kind of bureaucratization and uh, the legal framework that kind of exists now because of this decision Um, that kind of favors uh, the bosses and capital over workers. And kind of before 1945, before that point, unions like weren't a legalized, institutionalized entity. They were just groups of workers on the shop floor acting together in solidarity um, you know, they could go on wildcat strikes. There was no contract saying that they couldn't do this, um, couldn't do that during the life of their contract like we have now. And basically, you know, workers had the ability to withhold their labor at any time to disrupt production and halt capital accumulation, which I think is Q's been talking about, like, how do we strike fear into the, the minds of the, the ruling elite? And generally, it's by stopping capital accumulation. That that scares the shit out of them quite a bit. Um, and I guess the 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 decision from that 1945 that Justin um, that Justice um, Ivan Rand made kind of led to the the Rand formula, which led to like mandatory dues checkoff, um, where employers must kind of deduct dues from all employees in a unionized workplace and then remit those to the workers' union, and then in return uh, the unions had to abide by the understanding that strikes during the life of those collective agreements are illegal, and thereby kind of instituting like what I've been saying like the labor peace where um, you know what you can kind of you have these legal kind of frameworks for dealing with issues you can go with like the grievance process but you can't disrupt production you can't hold capital accumulation that is always going to happen regardless of what union that you have in place um, and I guess you know at the time many people thought that this was like a win for the labor movement but there were also many people who were concerned that it would result in the bosses and eventually the unions themselves to kind of undermine uh, worker militancy um, it had the effect of kind of creating a division between um, rank and file workers and then now these this professionalized and highly paid kind of union leaders and, and staffers and I, I don't want to like shit all over these people like some of them are still doing great work today I've, I've worked with kind of some of these union leaders that we have now and I don't want to say that uh, it's all entirely their fault they're kind of just hamstrung by this this framework that exists um, but it, it does result in conditions where these professionalized class of union leaders um, don't have to kind of personally endure the concessions that their workers do. And then, you know, it can lead to them wanting their members to kind of settle for less. Um, so I think, yeah, the labor piece um, is kind of the main thing that it hamstrungs, um, hamstrungs uh, workers today um, in, within their workplace. It's a de-radicalizing force and it removes workers like trust in unions to make their lives better um, when it doesn't really need to be that way. 
And I think, um, you know, knowing this kind of history of how unions used to be more radical, we need to go to a point where like disrupting the point of production and uh, halting capital accumulation through direct action is how we should be trying to achieve our demands, not through grievance processes, um, which are highly limited and all these other kind of methods that labor unions are kind of forced not to take part in today. So that seems to be a, a big difference. Uh, so Q, like, what what would you say the biggest difference is between a, a union like the IWW and like a current like mainstream business union? Uh, without like, I, I don't want to um, like denigrate bash whatever. Yeah, yeah, I don't want you to bash the existing. Yeah, union. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, there I mean, are some hard some hard limits that like exist, right? And and all of right. the stuff that Brandon just talked about is like real. Well, one of the, one of the issues with some of the uh, the larger mainstream unions is that they have a present and a past that doesn't necessarily comport with what's necessary right now. Uh, to give an example, like there's a reason that the oh, okay, I can I can say something about the AFL CIO because they're not they're not here, and what are they going to do? Fight me? But uh, there's a reason that it's called the AFL CIA, for example, right? Uh, that uh, there has been uh, collusion with some you know some labor groups. Uh, towards the the state uh, and uh, the execution of imperialism, also that you know many mainstream unions recognize, for example, police associations as unions also. And in any uh, picketing situation, you know where do you normally find the police and where do you find the workers? They're oftentimes on opposite sides. So the state's ability to exercise violence on the worker is conducted through the police, and to be to recognize the police as workers is is to me it's uh, it's it just doesn't make sense. It's a, it's an antagonistic kind of contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the fact that, and I'm, I'm going to be very careful about how I say this. There has been a history of racism in unions that has in some ways worked itself out, but in many ways still perpetuates itself. So, you know, to be able to find, uh, uh, you know, labor leaders, uh, manager or uh, 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 stewards and so forth, uh, that are people of color is still an issue that uh, unions are working through. Whereas with the Wobblies, not to say that there hasn't been um, histories of uh, racism, bigotry, antagonism, and so forth, but these are things that the IWW is constantly self-criticizing and working on in the, mean, in the meantime. Um, the IWW also does not recognize police associations as unions. They understand that you know police are essentially the enemies of the workers, that they're class traders and so on. So uh, their their method isn't simply to you know uh, figure out what what is legal, what is prescribed through the you know, labor laws that we've been able to hammer out, and uh, you know agreements that uh, the workers have come to with uh, with their oppressors. That is the, uh, the the management structure. The IWW will simply engage in wildcat strikes. The IWW believes that an injury to one is an injury to all. So, you know, any any action taken against a single worker is an action taken against workers as a whole. And I believe that the IWW's um, tacit approval of wildcat strikes, but also uh, their inherent approval of forms of mutual aid, uh, just to make sure that not only are like comrades in the workplace taken care of, but people in communities are taken care of. To me, it, it gets outside of what we find to be the limits of labor aristocracy, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'd pose the same question to you, Brandon, like w- what do the Wobblies do that is that are different from like the unions, the current business unions that, that exist as, as they are right now? Um, yeah, I think even just um, the way we approach unionizing in a workplace, um, is, is entirely different. Um, I guess, for instance, like right now, if you, you know, if you want to form a mainstream union, 
um, a typical union building campaign involves like a card Santa campaign. So you get 40% of the workers to sign cards. You submit that to, in our case, the Ontario Labor Relations Board. If that, uh, if you meet that th- uh, threshold, then uh, it goes to a vote where then 50% of the workers who turn out to vote have to work, uh, vote you know, in favor of forming the union. Once that union's built, um, or once the, that vote happens, let's say it's it, it's uh, it's approved, then um, that results in a union. And now all workers within that workplace, whether or not they voted yes or no, or whether they just voted at all, now have to start paying dues through that kind of dues checkoff process that I was talking about. Um, and you know, I I generally support these efforts when they happen. I'm not saying I'm against them, obviously, but the IWW approach. Um, is generally one built on building like a strong kind of internal workplace committee where you get more or less most of the consensus of the workers in that workplace to be on board with the idea of a union. There's not necessarily like a card signing campaign or anything um, like that. It's about building that strong workplace committee that kind of actually does the hard work of convincing all of the workers in that workplace that they should be a part of a union. And um, I think there's kind of good benefits to that as well as uh, the IWW relies on voluntary dues still so we don't there's no dues check off uh, as an IWW union um, it's voluntary so if the union starts doing stuff you don't like you have the option to not um, pay your dues um, and then I think kind of Q, Q talked about this already but you know yeah we rely on direct action and solidarity and we have as, as well an, an industrial union focus which I think is um, quite a difference as well. It's one of the most probably important distinction. So like just to give like a kind of an example, if, if a union at a university generally would kind of just try to organize like the teaching assistants or the grad assistants and the professors or pre- professors, sorry, uh, while an industrial union approach would look to kind of uh, unionize that whole industry of education and everything that makes that industry run. So, you know, the, the janitors, the food service workers, like even like the students, if you could get a more organized student union and the advantage of this is that it, it gives you way more leverage and power over the bosses and administrators. Um, and it also kind of builds class-wide solidarity that breaks down barriers between like so-called middle-class professionals and, and working-class laborers, um, you know, making people realize that they do in fact have um, shared interests and goals in common. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a super, I think both of you have really kind of laid out the case for one like a labor militancy that that doesn't exist anymore and that we need to bring back and that like you know an organization that is currently doing that is the IWW um you know Q I brought up the fact that you were a member of the IWW one one thing that you've also recently uh did is you very recently publicly joined the Communist Party of Canada and you know we just we were just talking about the you know the limits of electoral politics mm-hmm. but but why don't you tell me tell the audience about why you joined you know, the, the CPC and like, you know, how are they different from the other political parties that are out there? Well, I mean, you would figure that there's a contradiction in being part of the IWW and the communist party of Canada. I mean, uh, typically, you know, the two organizations that that is not the organizations, I should say like the two tendencies, uh, that is uh, communism and and anarcho-syndicalism have been antagonistic towards each other. And obviously there are some contradictions there, but in, in my, um, in my politics, like the way that I arrived where I am politically was through Pan-Africanism. So to me, the historical like tendential differences don't really mean a heck of a lot. And it's entirely about what are the conditions for people right now and where could there, where could there be improvements in those conditions? And I think that the IWW has 
they've, the IWW has it absolutely correct when it comes to uh, training people uh, and how to organize inside of the workplace and training people and how to organize in their lives generally. I think one thing that the Communist Party does extremely well is develop a theory of change. That is how, you know, what are the conditions? What history do conditions like the ones that we face have? Like, what do they have in common uh, with other, you know, other uh, points uh, throughout recorded human history? And then what do we do about that? You know, and, and I, I do firmly believe that what's necessary is a political alternative, but we can't simply develop a political alternative, like a socialist alternative to a bourgeois electoral system. You know, even if we're talking about like going as far left as the NDP, the NDP is still fundamentally a capitalist party. I mean, they removed socialism from the charter, I believe it was what, in 2013, uh, and has essentially run as a centrist to left of centrist party uh, ever since Alexa McDonough was leader. So we don't have a socialist alternative in this country, but the way that you build a socialist alternative, that sort of a cadre, isn't by simply creating a party and saying, hey, everyone join. You have to build a very strong core of people with fundamental beliefs and the constitution to develop democratic centralism. Uh, and before you you know, begin the, the, the very hard work of uh, creating a mass movement, you have to do the even harder work of creating a, uh, a firm and ideologically rooted cadre. Uh, and that to me is what's necessary. That's why I joined the Communist Party of Canada. But I saw, especially being uh, a black person myself and knowing that I had to, I discovered communism like later on in my life and uh, sort of put two and two together. Like how do we end imperialism? How do we end white supremacy? Like what do all of these things have in common? You know, they, what they have in common our class interests, which is some people may call that class reductionism. Like it, it's really just a matter of, you know, uh, dialectical materialism and historical materialism, that it is in the interest of the capitalist class to keep us divided from one another. I, I still do believe in pan-Africanism and, and the necessity of having the African diaspora uh, come together as uh, multiple nations against the forces of Eurocentric imperialism in order for that to happen within the imperial core we have to do the very difficult work of overturning the imperial core and that has to be done with the support of a broad working class movement and if we're going to engage in electoral politics as an alternative i don't see any right now viable alternative other than developing that through the communist party of canada Okay, so I'm a little uh, ignorant about you know what the CPC is up to, especially in my neck of the woods. But but does it? I know communist parties in other countries have engaged in you know mutual aid work and and you know feeding the hungry and and doing you know variety of things of that nature. Does is the CPC up to that sort of thing in Canada? I I mean there are different CPC clubs. You know I, I'm not going to speak for all of the CPC clubs, but I did see that as a shortcoming in the club that I'm a part of. So I'm in the the Toronto East Club. And my brother is, um, my brother, uh, Kenny, is part of the Toronto Parkdale Club. And we joined not very far apart from one another, but we joined with the same intention in mind, which was to push the CPC towards a model uh, that, uh, I don't want to say mimics, but more closely approximates what other uh, communist parties in other countries are doing, which is to engage in that community work and to engage in that mutual aid work. We can't. We can't live in the world of theory. You know, we can't live in the world of uh, coulda, shoulda, wait, maybes. And, you know, 
One of the criticisms that I get from a friend of mine, Matthew Green, who gives me a little nudge in the rib every now and then, is that, uh, you know, the Communist Party of Canada is one of the world's greatest book clubs. You know, you also call them the, the Communist huh. Book Club of Canada, which is it's fine. It's whatever. I've got, a, you know, I got I got some 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 hard distance for him in the NDP as well. But it is it does get to a bit of a it does get to a bit of a truth, which is that people do perceive the party as living entirely within the realm of theory. And there's simply not enough material action taking place. And look, if people in the neighborhood where I come from haven't seen Communist Party of Canada members, if they can't, if they don't know who the leaders are, if they don't know party members by name, then obviously there's a problem. So it's something that has been a shortcoming. Uh, and there has been a history of things like, uh, you know, uh, anti-black racism that that has happened within the party in years past, or not necessarily in the club that I'm part of, but has happened in like clubs in Canada, which does reflect badly on the party, unfortunately, you know, uh, but from my point of view, you can't wait around for an organization to be perfect before you join it. I think if you have the uh, the time, the capacity, and the ability, then it's incumbent on people with those those abilities to join revolutionary parties and to push them towards what's going to be necessary for it to become a mass movement. Yeah, I mean, the, the is it a book club or is it improving the material conditions of of you know the people is a, is a, is a is a fundamental tension, right? Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's an it's an interesting one, and, and it does come, and we do come back, uh, you know, to this mutual aid question, and like you know, the people doing mutual aid here in Edmonton, where I am, there's like. It's, I mean, it's mostly anarchists, like it's Treaty 6 Outreach, or it's like mm-hmm. it's folks who are organized around uh, Bear Clan. So it's like an indigenous-led organization that does street outreach. Um, so like those are the, the the ones that are like, you know, currently in my world. And um, not to say that the Communist Party of Canada shouldn't. I mean, I believe they should, but it's I, I don't see them doing that right now. And it's, it's funny to think about how, and being a political party like has real advantages. Like it's, it's funny to think about it, but, um, so I am, uh, and just to give you an example of how, uh, I am, I am currently in the process of, of getting my shit together in order to run, to be a, a Senate candidate in Alberta. Alberta has these wacky things called Senate elections that aren't actually real. Uh, no, the person who wins the election doesn't get to become a Senator, but what it does, uh, but you get the uh, you get the when you win you get uh, what happens is the premier writes a nice letter to the to the prime minister saying will, will you please appoint this person to the senate they won an election, um, but hilariously, the senate candidates are allowed to write tax receipts. Um, so yeah. like, so we can someone if someone gives a, a four hundred dollar donation worth of food and say we feed a bunch of unhoused people, that person gets a tax receipt for three hundred dollars, you know. Like yeah, yeah. The, it's, it's, it's an insane tax receipt that, that political candidates uh, get in this province. Uh, and, and so currently contemplating like, uh, you know, how, how to do things like this and with the team that I'm building for this kind of joke, uh, not a joke Senate campaign, but like not to say just, just to give an example of how, how the, um, how the, the communist party of Canada could be doing something. Um, Another big thing that I think is worth bringing up is like the question of protests. Right. And I, I think protests, you know, we saw a lot of them over the past year. 
uh, in Canada, you know, in Edmonton where I am, we we saw 15,000 people in the streets for BLM. We saw 12,000 people in the streets for Greta Thunberg. I'm sure in Toronto there was similarly like massive amounts of numbers of folks in the streets and and, and even Montreal I know as a, as a pretty kind of like <laughs> militant uh, street protest scene with their kind of like annual fuck the cops thing. But like uh, what are the value of protests? You know, what are their limits and, and what is the, like the fundamental difference in the kind of, you know, mobilizing versus organizing kind of question there? Oh, this is one of my favorite topics. Okay. <clears throat> and I have to preface this by saying that please do not take anything that I'm about to say as a, a knock against protesting because protesting is absolutely necessary. What I find, though, is that people often forget that there are steps beyond protesting. And unfortunately, they end up getting diverted into heat sinks that are designed to take the energy out of what the protests were there to do in the first place. So we saw up like a series of uprisings last year. But I, I think you might have noticed, especially after this uh, this Blackout Tuesday event uh, where, you know, corporate people and celebrities got involved in the whole mix. You would see events, and one of them happened right here in Toronto, where people would organize protests and be out marching with police and kneeling with police. Uh, Politicians would come out and put their fists in the air. And there there was a gradual co-option of the energy of the protests that ended up getting diverted into electoral politics to the point where politicians and political parties were comfortable saying things like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor are on the ballot. If these people had any shame and if they were made to be afraid of uh, those protesters and what the purpose of the protest was, they would never feel comfortable saying these things. And that is the process of co-option. And co-option is itself a form of organization on the part of the ruling class. So at all times, the ruling class is in the process of organizing. The ability to take the energy of protest movements of revolutionary movements and then subsume it into capitalism and, and subsume it into electoral politics and then sell it right back to the people as, well, this is what your choice is. It's, it's us or them. And these are your only choices. Not that there's a problem with the system and I am the threat. The threat is actually these people that I also happen to dislike or that whose politics I happen to oppose. And not even really fundamentally in principle. I just happen to like my aesthetics better and I'm part of a different political party. The other part is that... Um, you saw, uh, you know, companies like uh, like Amazon and Spotify and Netflix start talking about Black Lives Matter in a very what seemed like a self-reflective way, but this was almost entirely aesthetic. So on Amazon's front page, for example, you'd say you would see like a Black Lives Matter message, or on Netflix they create the category. Probably existed before this, but you know it became highlighted uh, during the course of the protest that there's like a, a Black Voices uh section in their their catalog disney has the exact same thing i was actually scrolling through disney plus i got kids i I got disney plus i can't make any apologies for that but there's a black voices section with like black panther which is (laughs) pro cia propaganda in there so it's like with with uh protesting comes the danger of if if you are highly mobilized you will have an effective protest but if you are highly mobilized and not highly enough organized then your protest movement can and will be subsumed into the dominant class narrative now i'm not saying this as somebody who is like an expert organizer myself i'm not by any stretch but i have the ability to observe things i have done you know plenty of studying in this area and i'm actually writing a, a book on the subject which is how it is that the energy of these movements simply get co-opted into the broader um, 
you know, ruling class narrative. And again, it's repackaged and resold back to people. I think we saw a really good example of this at the Grammys where the artist, uh, Lil Baby, uh, did a, you know, did a song performance and the aesthetics of the performance where, you know, uh, people like actors, you have to remember that in music videos and on stage, these people are all actors dressed up as police officers. And, you know, he's, he's rapping, he's getting in the officer's face. And then he, you know, jumps up on top of a police car, which is not a police car, but a, a prop designed to look like a police car or painted up to look like a, a police car. You know, he, he's dancing on top of it and he's singing. And it's like, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, this is what the cul-de-sac of culture is designed to do. It's designed to uh, divert radical action and revolutionary power into uh, cultural aesthetics and then calling that the victory. That having a song and dance performance in front of an audience of millions is somehow going to co- like spark revolutionary change. When in fact, revolutionary change was already happening on the ground. It's not like police were simply dancing on police cars. People were destroying police cars. They weren't just, uh, you know, getting an officer's faces. They were being beaten down and arrested and tear gassed and shot in the face with hardened rubber bullets by these police officers. So as a matter of fact, the, the, uh, the circumstances of real life were much more dire than what you were seeing in that performance. That performance, if anything, was a step back to say, well, hang on a second. Let's just go back to this form of peaceful protest where, you know, we felt like they couldn't do anything to us. That's just simply not what happens in real life. So the unfortunate side effect of um, underorganizing is that people who either out of ignorance or out of deliberate malice have the ability uh, to out-organize you, to take away the power of your movement, um, and essentially to put you right back where you were in the first place, which is where we find ourselves right now. And Brandon, I put I put the same question to you. Where where do you come down on the the kind of mobilizing versus organizing question? Yeah, I feel like I I mean I largely agree with Q and everything that he just said. It 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 totally is true that these these movements just get subsumed. And I think um, you know by like the dominant culture and you know yeah these cultural wins are now like somehow a victory. But you know I think. I think um, I guess just I guess it could also be like I want to say like maybe it's a failure of the left to like make any kind of like viable political alternative and in reality kind of seem real that like it's so easy for the dominant um, forces in our society just to like take these movements because there is no like identifiable like left that really exists out there. There's no like there's no like party that you can point to or organization that's large. Like, you know, AOC is as left as you get in like the U S or the NDP is a left wing party, you know, to a lot of people here, but it's like, I mean, to us, you know, as like socialists and communists here, we're like, no, those people aren't fucking left. Um, So yeah, I I think, you know, like having after, you know, Q said all that, I think, you know, we have to, as leftists have to be able to like not let that happen to, you know, to kind of take that energy from protests and put it into something that actually will build a real organization, whether it be a a political party or labor unions or whatever, but an an actual kind of organized left alternative that can like, um, can kind of fill that void that people have. Otherwise I think, you know, as, as capitalism starts to decay, like, um, um, the populist far right will, will fill in that void and, and will, uh, will kind of bring people to, to far right kind of ideologies instead of to the left. Interesting. It's 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 an interesting question, the the mobilizing versus organizing one, and and it's it's much like the question of like you know courts versus organizing. I mean, you still want 
you, you don't say none, no courts. You don't you don't say no mobilizing, but but you know the work of organizing is hard. <laughs> it's not sexy. It, it means talking to people who you don't always like or agree with, or you know wouldn't naturally or regularly speak to if you weren't trying to do something to change uh, the world for the better. But it is like you know it's, it's something you got to do, and. <sighs> And one one second to last thing that I think is worth talking about is, you know, we had a lot of chatter here in Alberta, you know, after Kenny took power about, you know, a general strike. And the, the, a general strike is a big fucking deal. I, I think it's important to be clear <laughs> of what you're talking about when you're talking about a general strike. Um, because the unions, I mean, in, our, in this province, I assume in Ontario as well, aren't even on the level where they're able to just have successful strikes of their own, like at, at their own workplaces, let alone spreading that to dozens of other workplaces into the, to the general population. And, you know, when you're talking about a general strike, you're talking about a, a legitimate five to 10 year organizing project. And, and the work simply just hasn't been done here in Alberta. And, and, you know, the last time, labor even attempted something like this, the, the, the days of action during the Harris days, um, you know, like there were some wins and there were some losses, but those weren't even general strikes. And those, and those were still huge fucking efforts and huge deals. They would go town to town and shut down a town. So I'm curious where you come up on the, uh, on the, the kind of like general strike as a tactic, as well as the kind of like work necessary to even pull it off. I mean, one has to keep in mind that the general strike doesn't simply materialize out of, out of thin air. The general strike, general like it, it often, and this is whether we're referring to like Winnipeg, Montreal, if we're referring to the UK labor strike, the uh, the labor strikes in the Caribbean, etc. These often begin as strikes uh, within one industry or one trade sector that spread out like wildfire to others that others are willing, ready and willing to act in solidarity. But like I said, the conditions are different now because essentially the the shop floor has been exported elsewhere and workers are heavily isolated and alienated. So that would mean that the entire precariat class or the frontline workers, as we call them, would have to be mobilized in order for, in order for a general strike to happen. This, without the strength of labor unions backing that precariat class, what are we going to do to make sure that they're covered in the meantime? Do we have strike funds available for DoorDash drivers? Do we have strike funds available for uh, for sex workers? Do we have uh, strike funds available for uh, for for uh, people that are working in like all kinds of? How am I going to put this? Like politely but succinctly, we haven't actually done the fucking work to make sure that people can put food on their tables in the first place. Like I was I was tailing off into this point about various like people in precarious work situations, but I don't think that's really strident enough. What I'm trying to say is, like, are we actually making sure that people's needs are taken care of? No, we aren't. In the absence of uh, strong unionized environments, in the, in the absence of strong uh, uh, labor policy um, and, and labor solidarity, what we haven't said is like an everybody out for themselves mentality. So if we were to engage in a general strike, for example, how can I make sure that my next door neighbor and how can I make sure that a friend of mine online is going to have everything that they need? We, we can't. And that is the sort of like the, the material difference between general strikes that happened back then and the proposal for a general strike now. We simply haven't done the work necessary to make a general strike happen in the first place. The way that strikes end up getting broken up isn't simply due to state violence. Strikes also get broken up when people feel the need 
to like cover their material needs that they just they need to eat. They need to keep the lights on. They need to make sure that their 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 children are able to sleep in a warm bed at nighttime. You know, like real life actually gets to you. And unfortunately, real life has already gotten to people to the point where we have like 10 cities in every major city right now. Are we making sure that everyone's needs in 10 cities are taken care of? No, we're not. So I don't see a general strike as a realistic possibility for the time being until we get our shit together when it comes to mutual aid. Yeah, yeah you said it, man. I mean, it's it's important. I think, you know, I don't, I'm not a member of the Communist Party of Canada. I'm not a wobbly, but I think fundamentally you know, we, we do have to come together. And when we talk about left unity, which is a pretty fraught fucking subject for variety. Oh God, every, and, oh God, this is the other thing too. And that's one of the reasons I, you know, wanted to have this conversation with you is that, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we all have to be on the same Wi-Fi signal. I don't think that we all necessarily have to get along. I do think though, that there are some general principles of unity required. And I know that the online space oftentimes amplifies uh, a whole lot of weird stuff that doesn't play out in real life. Like I've never, for example, had a sing- single conversation either within the Communist Party of Canada or really anywhere in my life about Stalin. Never, never happened. Not not once. You know, I've never had a conversation about the um, IWW uh, trying to, through the African Blood Brotherhood, poach members out of the UNIA. Hasn't happened. Like it's just, it's just stuff that pe- like regular people do not talk about and generally do not care about so online stuff amplifies a whole lot of like i think people just generally like read books and they want to show off how much they know and want to argue over that but where i do see uh some of these like tendential splits is in ideology and like ideology itself taking precedent over what conditions actually look like for people so am i going to have an argument with any of you know friends and family from the iww over anti-communist tactics in the past no, I do not. I, I just don't care. I care about what's happening right now. I care about people right now. I don't care about all of this stuff from previous. We have the ability to make our own history. And I, I, I think that uh, what a lot of like what bogs a lot of people down in this sort of like quest for left unity is like ideas and principles that for the most part don't really have anything to do with them whatsoever. I think it is possible to, for example, and other party members may not agree with me. I'm just saying this as Q. I'm not saying this as, you know, uh, a representative for any party or whatever. I think it is possible to work with and alongside, for example, the NDP. I think it is, I think it is entirely possible, especially if, you know, when the uh, CPC is ready to run people federally, I don't know that we're there yet, but when we are ready to, you know, have like a, a, a mass run in every writing uh, that if communist members were elected to, elected to parliament, um, what would very likely happen is, you know, uh, an understanding and possibly even coalitioning with, with NDP people. Now, maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. That's just what my outlook is. They're the people with the closest tendency to ours, even if they're not necessarily like uh, socialist in nature. So I, I think that all of these, like these, these, these weird ideas from that, not even necessarily from the past, but that we bring in with our own egos. And, and lead with them are kind of what gets in the way. And if we were able to drop that for a second and have like principled and fruitful conversations about those differences, that would help a hell of a lot. I mean, look at what's happening, for example, with uh, China, right? You have people on the so-called left, but are generally like, you know, left of center progressives 
that agree that China is a threat. You have people on the far right that agree that China is a threat. There's a neoliberal consensus that something has to be done about China. And what do you see as a result of that? There is a wave of Sinophobic hate crimes, which uh, culminated yesterday in a mass shooting at massage parlors in Atlanta, like a, a multitude of them. And I believe it was eight women that were killed um, by a white mass shooter. Now, how can you um, immerse yourself in a media environment that has been trumpeting for years that China is a rising threat, that Chinese people are somehow a threat, that, that play into these more than a century old yellow peril narratives. And this is supported on the so-called left, at least as far, in the, as far as the political and media sphere is concerned, this is what passes for left. And on the right, they're able to develop consensus around neoliberal ideas. They also develop consensus around things like austerity, around debt hawkery and these things. Like they differ in terms of aesthetics and they differ in terms of language, but in terms of policy and policy outcomes, there's not a heck of a lot of daylight between them. But where it comes to the actual principled left, the smallest like split causes a massive schism that becomes irreconcilable. And I, I just don't think that some of these contradictions, I don't even like to call them tendencies. I call them, you know, perspectives and, 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 and outlooks. I don't think that they are necessarily antagonistic. I don't think that they are irreconcilable. I think that the C the communist party and the IWW can work together on many fronts. We're not, we don't live in a post-revolution environment. And even agree. if it does, even if it does come down to, you know, a, a post-revolutionary environment, ultimately what communists want is kind of the same thing that the anarcho-syndicalists want, which is the dissolution of the state. We just disagree as to how to get there. So to answer that question, like what stands in the way of left unity for the most part, it's ego the left. and some, yeah, yeah, nothing more than ourselves. I mean, it's not just the left. It's it's you know, it's like that uh, you know that old saw that uh, you know the the greatest enemy of uh, the Scottish people is the Scottish people. But um, I think I think it really just comes down to like ego and a bizarre sense of what kind of history that we have to carry with us. I'm sorry, I felt like I talked right over you there, Brandon. No, no, that's fine. I was totally agreeing. I think maybe one other thing I would say is like, you're absolutely right. The left is just so goddamn dogmatic that we get caught up in these conversations that no one gives a fuck or even know about. And like, um, I think, you know, if, if we want to have like a dialectical materialist perspective to this, then it needs to be about having like discussions, learning from each other about what um, what we each have to say and like coming to a conclusion that how to actually advance the struggle forward, not like arguing about what's the best way to achieve a moneyless classless society or something so like uh, like so far fetched in the future. It needs to be about like pragmatic steps that we can take right here and right now because we generally have shared goals. So, yeah, I totally agree with everything you said there. Yeah, and the point I was trying to get to in regards to you know left unity, which isn't even where I wanted to go, but just go off, King, which was um, was the <laughs> the, uh, the the fundamental and foundational thing that I am interested in organizing with people around is defeating capitalism. Like, is you know, I, I again, I'm not a member of the Communist Party of Canada. I am not a member of the IWW, but I am interested in organizing with people who realize who our common enemy is. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that's a foundational one for me. I'm curious, uh, why don't, why don't we close it out with like, you know, what is your kind of like foundational tenet of like, you know, who is the common enemy? What, 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 what do you absolutely need to, to agree with someone on before you kind of are willing to work with them? 
I, I think for me, you know, the enemy is white supremacy. The, ans- the enemy is imperialism. The enemy is capitalism. As long as we can agree, and, you know, all of three of these are like the many heads of the Hydra. Uh, so as long as we can agree on the commonality of the enemy, that capitalism is itself uh, the root cause of many of society's ills, uh, that white supremacy is a tendency that arises out of the need for capital to propagate itself. And that imperialism is the the determining force in what causes the split between the quote unquote developed world, that is the world that is developed on the backs of the global south and the global south itself. As long as we can agree on these things, then you're a friend of mine and, and we can work together. And if you're somebody who believes that capitalism is a force for good, if you're somebody that believes that we have a right to accept, and when I say we, I'm talking about Canada as a state, not that this is something a tendency or an ideology they identify with. But if, if uh, you know, imperial states have the ability uh, to spread their hegemony through economic and military force, then unfortunately, you're just on the other side of me. We There's nothing that's reconcilable about that. We are, we're enemies. And that's kind of how the struggle works. I don't think I can I can put the, uh, that any better. I, I agree. And I've also, yeah, capitalism is the root cause of our issues. And yeah, I don't know. I can't I can't really say it any better. So, Well, let's end it there then. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Q and Brandon. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Uh, now is the, the, that time of the show where you get to, to plug your pluggables what, uh, and your various social media accounts. How, how can people follow along and support your work? Uh, Brandon, why don't you go first? I don't even uh, think sure. you're on. Do you even have a Twitter account? I don't even know. Uh, I personally don't really tweet very much. Uh, I can I can plug my own account though. I guess if you really want to follow no, me, no, 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 whatever I, you want, you can you can plug an organization. It's really yeah, up to yeah. you. But I'll start with the branch because I think they're a bit more active than me. So yeah, if you're interested in joining, let's say you happen to be in Toronto, which you're probably not, that's okay. Uh, iww Toronto. Sorry, iww is our website. Uh, for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, it's at iww Toronto for all three of those. Um, uh, the Edmonton, there's an Edmonton IWW branch as well. I think they're most active on their Facebook account. That's at edmonton.iww. And if you're somewhere else in Canada, you can go to iww.ca and check out a list of all the, the branches there. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to follow along with my work, you can uh, you know uh, follow me at M- in McLean's Magazine. I uh, usually write there about once a month. Uh, you can also follow me at Andre Demise. That is uh, A-N-D-R-A-Y-D-O-M-I-S-E on Twitter. And uh, you can also listen to the Resistance Noir podcasts. Uh, so Resistance Noir is an indie black media network. And uh, we get into everything from, you know, electoral politics to imperialism to film, art and culture and to black womanism. Uh, so you can uh, check out our podcasts online. Yes, they're excellent. I just uh, started subscribing to uh, what's the one that you're on? There's, I mean, there's like four or five, but the one you're on yeah, is the. And, and we are consolidating them into a single stream, which is the Resistance okay. Small Podcast. But I'm with the uh, the crew that I'm with is the Drop Squad. So generally, we uh, we analyze uh, politics uh, and culture, and oftentimes get into uh, you know American imperialism and other aspects of of you know the the dread disease of capitalism. Um, but yeah, we, it's a, it's an excellent, uh, group of people that, that I work with S- smart and sharp as hell. Um, and I, I learned so much from them just by having conversations on the podcast every week. Yeah. And I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from listening to you and following on your accounts, follow Andre, uh, uh, Andre Demise on Twitter. He is a, uh, 
a force and and i don't know how you do it to be honest i can't keep those hours um, <laughs> uh what it what it is is uh it's it's real um it's real riddling hours uh you know I, I also happen to work remotely so i'm in front of a computer for like many hours in the day um except for you know when i've, I've got like family to take care of and school work to finish and whatnot but uh, because a lot of my work is performed in front of a screen. Um, unfortunately, folks like to try me and I bring the citations. So There you go. And folks, if you like this podcast, if you want to join the 440 some others who help keep this little independent media project going, it's very easy. You go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card, contribute. If you If you got something out of this organization, if you follow along with the work that we do, the investigative journalism that we do, and you want to see us continue to do it, uh, your contribution is really important. And we really do appreciate all the donors that we already do have. Uh, also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, I'm really easy to find. You can find me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at DuncanK at ProgressAlberta.ca. Thanks again to Q and Brandon for coming on the show. Thanks again to Comic Cosmic Famu Communist for our theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>